next one. Yeah, I've got um, yeah, like I said, nineteen films, and I know that I'm going to have to go through the ones just in order that I saw because they will just be out of my mind next week. Um, so yeah, uh, also uh, this this a bit of bad news as well. I actually broke my name generator machine because. I got drunk and I kept on pressing the button to try and make it say "Marry Me, Granddad too," and it just wore it out. I was wondering if there was, you know, you know, they say if if you put, was it if you give mon- an infinite amount of monkeys an infinite amount of time, they'll eventually yeah. put the works of Shakespeare. Mm. I was I was hoping that the same thing would apply to "Marry Me, Granddad too," and it, it just broke. So I, I haven't actually got a, a name to generate this week. I for think us. this proves that if you give monkeys an infinite amount of time, then you just break the monkeys. <laughs> Yeah, they just die of old age. Yeah, just, <laughs> just write a load of nonsense. You might and, give them infinite time, but they don't have infinite time to live. So, but I they tell just... you what, I have. Oh, go on, sorry. No, go, go. Um, I, I, I have come up with uh, a new game though that I'm gonna. Well, it's more of a challenge for you, like a weekly podcast challenge for you. Um, or you can do them to me, however you want to do it. Now, mm. this is a game that already exists, but I've just given it a name that I like. So what I've called this game. Arkansdar, because it's like Alan Arkin to Robert Zdar, and it sounds a bit like Arkansas, so it's like Arkansdar. So it's like an A to Z. And I choose two actors or actresses from right. films I've watched this period. And by next week, not on this, not in this podcast, but by yeah, next it could week, be very tedious <laughs> if we did it all within the same podcast. <laughs> you, you have got to find a link between one actor and the yeah. other in as few steps as possible. Okay. okay. Without using, well, research materials, I take it. This is all from memory. No, you can you can use you can you know I yeah I suppose ideally from memory. But if you can, yeah if you can, okay yeah yeah I I, um, I I might check my working apps afterwards. Okay. And, um, so do you have some names in mind this week? Yes. So okay. and also the, the the listeners can join in if they email their answers if they can beat you actually. Oh, yeah. Be yeah. Then we'll, um, give, if, we'll give them ten thousand pounds. You, yes, right. You'll give them ten thousand pounds. <laughs> okay, so we'll, we'll take that from the, the petty cash then. Okay, <laughs> not the serious cash. Right. Um, the Tom Petty Cash Fund. So, <sighs> uh, yeah, listeners can join in uh, if they email us at themenwhotalkatoutlook.com. And so, this week's round of Arkans Da is how in how how few steps can you get from Thomas Jane to Jeffrey Coombs? Okay, so they're two actors that have been in films that I watched this week. So yeah, that's uh, Thomas Dane to Jeffrey Coombs in as few steps as possible. Okay. Okay. So have you done it? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it... <laughs> it's. I, I think this is doable. I think this is doable. Oh, it's nice. That's, that kicks off our first round of Arkans Da. And yeah, a lot of the listeners can join in if they email at the men who talk at outlook.com. Now, I'm very aware, Rupert, mm. that I have got 19 films. Uh, <laughs> I, I managed to wangle some sponsorship. Now, I know that you have um, uh, a series that yes. you've been working your way through. Now, um, do you want, shall I do the sponsorship first and then we can go hurtling in and you can explain the series? Or how do you want to do this? I think uh, get the sponsorship out of the way. I mean, I say out the way, I mean, these are vital parts of our survival as a podcast, aren't they, really? I mean, they, they just keep the money rolling in. Yeah. Actually, um, I 
from all the money we've earned from these podcast sponsorships and um i realized that instead of putting all the notes in there i'd put in a load of coins and i just dived in like scrooge mcduck and i just shattered my wrists um so but i'm so rich that i've combined a pulley system here to like press all the buttons for me and help me with the podcast as i do it which i'm controlling with my feet so i've got like strings tied around my toes and i'm wiggling them and everything's happening i'm controlling the volume right now doing it so this week this week we are sponsored by chuggers chewing gum are you bored of chewing gum do you find all available flavors just a little bit childish and boring well here at chuggers we create long-lasting chewing gum with adult flavors to make you feel like a grown-up choose from our new chuggers adult range of flavors dusty building site father's breath fags six pints of premium lager new car gammon lavender fresh blood gas leak and brown sauce pick up a chuggers today and get chugging like an adult far be it from me to sort of have a go at like to to paint our sponsors in a negative light but mm-hmm. like for example for example i use chewing gum as a way to freshen my breath you know it's like if i'm going to a meeting or if i'm going to like kiss someone or whatever mm. if, I'm going to, if i'm going to kiss patrick wilson i would put a chewing gum in my mouth first for, as a total top of my head example yes um if I had a chewing gum that tasted like a gas leak, which is, I'm bearing in mind that that very specific smell of gas is added to natural gas, yeah. so we can smell it because it's scentless, so we know when there's a problem. So you basically, it's it's a scent that reminds people of of a sense of panic and concern. I I'm not sure if I would want that permeating from my gob. No, although I will say on that subject of Patrick Wilson, I know for a fact that he's a big fan of salted pork. So the gammon flavor would be perfect for him. Oh, really? Mm. I, he so, had, yeah. He's got such beautiful porcelain like skin. I didn't know if he was uh, like a vegetarian or something. No, but he does like, he no. Does like the salted pork. I tried the oh, lavender on him and it didn't go anywhere. Oh, yeah, lavender. lavender at least is you just smell like an old woman's bathroom, wouldn't you? But ghastly, a gas leak is sticking. I mean, I like brown sauce. But I, I don't know. It's I don't know. <laughs> Lavender is such a such a nothing smell as well. I, but it's it's a nothing smell just to smell. But then if you put it in your mouth, you know it would just stay there forever. <laughs> yeah, it's real, and you'd always be like, yeah. <laughs> like is, that, is it still there? Or was it nothing? Um, <laughs> so Rupert, then what film series have you got for us this week? This this week. I have watched, well, which is quite a while ago now, I've watched the Alien series. I've watched eight Alien films. The eight Alien films. Questionable whether they're all canon, I won't lie. But they... Or indeed if they're all ball. <laughs> or indeed if they're all good. Um, so well, I can answer that. They're not. But some of them are. <laughs> Wait, the alien as in like Prometheus and, and yes. like the whole shebang oh wow okay mm, including the versus films oh my god I forgot about those <laughs> oh this is going to be really exciting well I'll tell you it, what, this it, is, is, a, it is a series of astonishingly variable quality <laughs> right. it's like I don't think you know the way you get like <laughs> children of the corn or something and it's like <laughs> You watch the first one, you think, yeah, it's all right. And then 
and and then they'll just get progressively just worse, just rubbish. Or you watch something like I don't know Halloween, and it'll be like good first one, and then just a load of crappy sequels, really. And then one of them might be like a bit better. Same with Nightmare on Elm Street, all this kind of stuff. So mm. there'll be a basic like it'll be like good first one, and then generally not great. Uh, and so there's your kind of uh, there's your pattern with Alien. It's so up and down. It's ridiculous. Mostly down. I won't lie. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, because I suppose thinking back, um, I had a conversation with my brother about something similar to this, where he was he's a big fan of the Saw films, and he he says mm. he knows that a lot of them are just crap. Like I, th- I believe he said one, two, and six are good. <laughs> and and I was just thinking because when you originally said you're doing a series of eight films. And I'm sure that the numbers don't add up. But my immediate thought was, obviously, he's watching Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and I realized the same as the, like you say, the, the Friday the 13th films, Any anything that goes on for any real length of time, they're not going to, Children of the Corner, because that is literally, that literally starts middling and dives off a cliff in into hell. Because I, I remember walk, walking into my old flat, walking home from work, and Faye said, oh, I'm just about to pop on Children of the Corn 10 if you want to join me. And I thought, well, I've never seen any of them. I may as well leap into the 10th. And it was just literally just people wandering around a field. Not unlike uh, Howling, I think it's 7, New Moon Rising, where it's just a load of people eating beans and farting around a campfire. And you think, is this a werewolf film? So, but I'm, I'm guessing that at least there's a budget with the alien films. Like with Children yes. of the Corn 10, I think people just like literally went through their pockets and just said, oh, let's just make a film, guys. Well, the thing about the Alien series is they never they never got to the point where they just um, kind of resigned themselves to straight to video or now straight to streaming. Um, they've so instead they've gone the other direction, which is trying to reinvent it or try and aim at a younger audience each time, or or aim at uh, an older audience as the recent ones have. And yeah, so it hasn't it hasn't resigned itself, but at the same time. That also means it just hasn't it hasn't hit a consistent mark at all. I just realised that you know the old days of we used to make the not the joke of this it's a true fact of when things were like straight to video you know it's like you have or straight to DVD it was mm-hmm. kind of a mark of quality where they don't even drive past cinemas to deliver them to the stores um, they take alternate routes. Well, this you're saying now it's like straight to streaming. Uh, if you say straight on streaming, it's SOS. So it's almost like it's a a mayday call for the quality of the film if it's like straight on streaming. <laughs> yeah, I suppose um, it might be a little bit unfair on, you know, some of these higher budget Netflix productions and stuff. But there is a lot of crap, clearly, which is going, which is going straight to streaming. Uh, There's a real problem with that on Prime. <laughs> some of them accidentally send it to Netflix, but you know, in error. Um, Really quickly, I've I've watched uh, three films that you suggested last time. Um, I watched Castle Freak with th- that's what gave me the Jeffrey Coombs for the Arkans Dar. Um, yeah, Castle Freak, which which I did really enjoy. Really surprisingly grisly moments in that film, but I'm not gonna lie to you. Um, and I watched Dark Breed, which was just as fun as you recommended. I don't think I enjoyed it quite as much as you, uh, but I was. I think you set the bar so high in my mind. <laughs> That I was like, oh, this is going to be PM Entertainment Gold. And I did like Jack Scalia. There were a few scenes that made me laugh. And it, it gave me a vibe of like almost like a like a 50s. That scene in the diner where he's talking to his ex-wife who is inhabited by an alien parasite. Yeah. And because the aliens are female, they're both having a go at him. 
yeah. and and he's like, oh, bloody women. I thought this is. <laughs> it does have like a, a, a certain Twilight Zone quality to it, didn't it? Yeah, but it was fun. It never took itself too seriously, and it was. They must have had two explosions for the price of one. The amount of explosions and sugar glass that just gets shattered in that film. There's a bit where they're fighting in a hospital, and they just he's all he's doing is like pushing him, and it's in slow motion through about nine panes of sugar glass, <laughs> literally panes of glass, like across a hospital corridor. They wouldn't be there. Um, but good, good, because it gives the film a, like a real sense of fun, and you, you, it's never boring because something's always exploding it's or constantly exploding. People would just I don't know they would just like trip on a stairs and just explode. <laughs> and and also the amount of times Jack Scalia is just hanging off the back of an open van going down a freeway uh, constantly. I thought it was just one set piece. No, nope, happens three times. And then the bit where he's just like skidding behind it on on a radar dish behind a van, swinging Amazing. around a fruit. Good, good. Um, and the third one I tried to watch, and I must admit I turned it off after about an hour because it was it was just I had no more time for it. Was Albert Pian's Arcade. Um, that film is bad. When the film started, and mm. of course it just shows like Seth Green and his stupid ginger wedge and all of these kids, and it is one kid who is clearly like a really smug tosser who just dresses like um dresses like a middle-aged uh, businessman like who's just gone through divorce and is out trying to impress the ladies again so he's got like um like really baggy work trousers on with like massive trainers and then a big buckle but then a, a black turtleneck jumper tucked in and you're like you're 12 what are you wearing and and then so it's him and then some whining girl who always talks like this and then i realized after 20 minutes oh hang on these are the main characters oh these yeah. aren't i could not believe they are the two they went with for the main for the film but yeah, yeah. So you got a really irritating girl who's trying to save a, a ridiculous boy who dresses like a 50 year old yeah um and you're right one of the other things you said that, that stuck with me as i was watching the film was albert pian his frames are really cluttered it, like it's amazing isn't that it's like he goes into a room and he'll he'll just it'll all be just mishmash just like they'll say the film in someone's living room uh, although everything is just clearly like really really setty if you know what i mean yeah, yeah. but he, he'll just like be behind a table so you'll have a table in the bottom corner corner just above below the camera and like some plants kind of in the way and everything just you almost just want to like move the camera slightly so you've got a clear yeah. view of what's happening it's like it's like he, he's got they've got the set and they bring the camera in and, and albert just goes right if we position it here so this computer monitor is obscuring a third of the screen maybe you go and stand by the window see so slightly out of focus brilliant perfect <laughs> it's it seems to me like the fundamentals of filmmaking like yeah. really really extremely basic stuff like setting up a camera and looking down at the lens and he can't even do that and the film is crushingly boring <laughs> so yeah. yeah and it does the plot really quickly because i know this is just a two minute trash in but the, there was a scene in it and I, it was where i started to lose patience where for some reason they're all meeting on yes it effectively is just like a construction site which is where the little gang meets up and seth green mm. is just sat there doing nothing and then the girl says to him right we're going to go and find out what's happened to the other guys promise not to watch television and he like kicks off and then the other guy who dresses like a fifth year like grabs him by the lapel and says you know listen to her this is serious don't watch television and i thought He's sitting in a construction site, and it's the early 90s. He is not going to watch television. He cannot watch television. <laughs> and it's like, why is this in the script? Anyway, yeah, it was just crap, and I gave up. And it made me wonder if there's any good Albert Pian films ever beyond Cyborg, which is okay. 
No, is the answer. I mean, Dolman, as I've said, has its moments, uh, at least as a sense of fun. And Captain America has a bit uh, where Ronnie Cox kicks a, uh, a cell door off its hinges. But other than that, I mean, it's slim pickings, really, isn't it? In all fairness, if you're watching a film and the highlight is watching someone kick a door open, that's not 90 minutes well spent, is it? Did Albert Pean direct Captain America? I think he did. Yes, yeah, he did, yeah. yeah. In the 1992 version, it was astonishing. Right then. Right, go on then. Do you want to kick off? Because I've chatted about my two-minute catch-ups now. Okay. I actually watched one that uh, you've seen as well called The Rental. Um, but we'll talk about that next time because I've got a few things to say about that. Cool. Um, so it all began with Alien in 1979, directed by Ridley Scott. Um so this is a horror film about this blue collar crew on this mining ship called Nostromo. And they're taken out of status on route to earth to respond to a distress signal coming from a planetoid. They land, they discover a strange spaceship and they inadvertently bring an alien back on board much to uh, Ellen Ripley's um, reluctance. Um, and anyway, so the alien, it it hatches and it then grows and starts picking them off one by one. And that's pretty much it as far as the plot goes. So as we know, alien designed by H.R. Geiger, a pretty mad artist as far as it goes. If you've seen his other photos, it's, a, it's quite a disturbing sexual element to it. Um but it always kind of built out of these weird kind of polished blackened pipes and stuff. It's all very lots of orifices and things. But anyway, but I, I think that equal praise, I mean, Geiger's kind of the famous one, but I think equal praise should go to Ron Cobb and Chris Voss because these are the guys who they designed the, the human part of the film, the human spaces. So, the kind of spaceship stuff, the human living spaces. And in I think that has held up just as well as the kind of iconic alien designs. Because all of the alien stuff with its nest and things like that, it's all very kind of curved, very shiny and polished and pure in its appearance. Whereas all the human stuff is very angular, uh, kind of grubby, very worn, um, and and I think that's a really clever bit of kind of um, juxtaposed production design because it's if you remember there's a scene where um, Ian Holmes' character refers to how he admires the purity of the alien and it is about that kind of there is a purity and an order to the to the alien kind of civilization so to speak um, whereas the the human side of it what we see the humans is very messy it's uh there isn't any kind of purity to it it's very um it's very grimy it's very dirty it's you know there's like pipes hissing everywhere and stuff um it's it's quite messy so yet the production design is really it's kind of the real star of this film i suppose because it is such a dense atmosphere but but there's also it's combined with this very 
naturalistic acting style, which is obviously delivered by an amazing cast because you've got like obviously Sigourney Weaver, possibly her first major role. Um, and then you've got uh, the likes of Tom Skerritt, you've got John Hurt, got Ian Holm, Yafet Koto. They're all really, really good. Um, and yeah, and so it, that, that kind of combination of the production design, direction, the, the acting, these are all things that elevate the material above what is essentially a kind of B-movie plot, really. You're taking, you're taking what is a pretty basic monster movie idea and elevating it by, by ba- basically just putting quality into all of the craft of the filmmaking, if you see what I mean. So, yes, and there's, of course, the famous death scene uh, involving John Hurt, spoiler alert, um, which I would put on a par with uh, Janet Lee's death in Psycho, 1960. Spoiler alert again. Um, <laughs> Just and, over the 20-year margin there. <laughs> I I actually got to watch this with a young person who had no idea what was going to happen in the dinner scene. And it was brilliant to watch, to see someone who has got no idea what's going to happen to John Hurt and and it gives you an idea of what audiences must have kind of experienced at the time. Because when you think about it, right, it wouldn't have been like, you wouldn't have been able to get spoilers online or anything like that. You may have seen one, um, you may have seen a trailer, but po- possibly not. It probably would have just mostly been word of mouth. And so you go into this film and then this thing happens in the dinner party scene and it's i call it a dinner party like it's really very like kind of elegant depressing (laughs) yeah Yeah. but it's actually them just noshing food on their way back to earth and yeah and it is properly shocking and famously the the cast didn't know what was going to happen i mean i'm not sure how true that is they must have had some idea of the the, because there'd be a setup obviously and they'd know that some sort of device under but i guess what what they may not have known is just how like horrendously violent and visceral it was going to be. And perhaps they wouldn't have known how well John Hurt sold it because his performance in pretending to have something burst out of him is really quite disturbing as well. I've got it just for people who aren't aware this scene. Um, it's John Hill walking back from like, a, he goes to the sort of all inclusive buffet. And as he's going to sit down and have dinner with everyone, he slips on some chicken fat and his foot flies up and he kicks himself in the face um and his face just just bursts and that's what rupert's referring to yeah it's called the face burst scene (laughs) (laughs) yeah it it was um it would be i was as you were talking about it i did think that's one of those moments that as you before you mentioned watching it with someone younger and who saw it for the first time that's a great cinematic moment to and i can't remember when i saw it for the first time for some reason but it, it, does he really sell it? Is it still when you watch it? Is he just keen on selling what's happening to him? Yeah, and it's and what is disturbing when you especially when you know what's going to happen as well. It's disturbing because you can see his kind of face change and then him such a grimace. You see the reaction to the other people, and it's just it, it's such a it could be a scene that would seem really cheesy and it could be completely ruined by a poor performance, if you see what I mean. Like, if someone if someone weren't able to portray what it's like to actually have something trying to claw its way out of you, you see mm. what I mean? I mean, it must be pretty difficult to sell that 
because you know it's not really something you can empathize with that well but because <laughs> yeah, it hasn't happened to me yet so you know. um you know whereas a lot of human emotions you can always draw upon something in yourself can't you really whereas yeah. if you these sorts of extremes these extreme physical transformations is something that is really just a totally creative imaginative um experience i guess um yeah so i think i i just think and i, I not just that scene but generally the film itself um you just have to think of how shocking and how new this would have felt in 1979 because i can't think of anything which is like it in the monster certainly not in the monster movie genre um in terms of just the production values and the atmosphere and the tension building and the gore which is still pretty full-on and you know 10 years earlier 2001 a space odyssey changed what science fiction could look like and i think that alien in 1979 did the same with horror i think it i think it was a step up for what horror could be and so that's why it's a classic and still stands as a classic would you say yes and it's still yeah. i think it's still the, the best in the series so there's no point talking about the rest then. <laughs> yeah, and the, but that's not just nostalgia because I didn't watch it until it was a bit later on. Anyways, it's not like I was like a kid, and it's not really a film you you. It's not really a film you watch as a kid and have nostalgia for because it's so weird and slow and dark and intense. It's not like it's a you know like a. It's not like watching Starship Troopers when you're a kid and thinking, "Oh, this is so cool." Um, you know, <laughs> it's it's pretty. It's pretty uh, grim and patient and tense. So it's not like a, a cool action thriller or anything like that. And none um, of the people, none of the characters are trying to be cool in it. They don't, don't come across as, as cool as such. Really, you're, you, you, you end up sympathizing with the one who's basically most resourceful and most professional. I remember my um, when I was a kid. Uh, I don't know why this memory sticks in my head so much. I think it's because it was such a succinct um, review of the film, really. I remember being really young and in the back of a car. My parents were talking about Alien. And I said, oh, can I watch it? And I can't remember. I must have been very young, like nine or ten. I said, oh, can I watch it? And my mother said, no, you wouldn't like it. And she said, anyway, it's just a load of people crawling around in the dark swearing. And I remember being a kid and thinking, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I thinking think it like, captures <laughs> everything the film has to offer, I've got to say. It's always tickled me. It's just a lot of so dismissive. Wonderful. Um, the music's yeah. amazing. Jerry Goldsmith's score. Beautiful. I might watch the um, scene with John Hurt later on, actually, because I haven't seen that in, in a very, very long time. Mm. Um, if I'm okay to move on then if that's cool with you yeah. um, to, to be, this is quite weird actually because I'm also going to talk about a horror film from 1979 and this mm -hmm. is Alien uh, this is a film that <laughs> it's not, it's just the same film uh, it, this is Tourist Trap um, starring Chuck Connors the man with the most all-American 70s name in the world and it's directed by David Schmoller but 
produced by Charles Band, he of Full Moon Entertainment. Um, David Schmoller also directed the Puppet Master film, the first one. I, I, if I have seen that, it was a long time ago. So this is, as far as I'm aware, the first film I've seen this directed by him. And <clears throat> uh, Taurus Trap is about uh, a group of teenagers who go to who are sort of driving along a, a highway and they, they get a flat tire. And one of them, Woody, who was wearing astonishing clothes, goes to a gas station to get help. And when he goes to the gas station, it's seemingly deserted. And he goes into the back room and gets attacked by all these really bonkers mannequins. And it's probably the best scene in the film. And it's within the first like 10 minutes where he just goes in there and he's walking around like, hello. And this cupboard opens and it's just a mannequin starts laughing at him. And then more and more come out of different doors. And it's just, it's just insane. Unfortunately, the film doesn't keep up that level of insanity. But it is, while it's not a lost classic, it, it is interesting because they, the film moves on then. They go to a, it, it's, you know, like a roadside attraction they have in America. Mm-hmm. Sort of a, it's it's a dilapidated one uh, run by Chuck Connors, who's got a touch of the Jack Palance about him. And he is, it's like a load of um, sort of scenes from throughout American history with all these mannequins. And he can just control them with his mind. And I love that the film doesn't explain anything beyond the supernatural powers he's got, other than like, ah, he can, he's just, he can just move things with his mind. And it's just effectively then him attacking the kids and them trying to stay away from him. It's a dark film. It's a really trashy film. It's not gory. It's more, um, it's more moody than that. And just a bit odd, a bit off. And it, keep the sort of unique oddness of it does make it a worthwhile watch but it's not it's not a lost classic it's no ninth configuration mm. no it's um it's it's and it's probably like a t- if we use intruder as a tier two horror like you said this is probably just below that in that it's a fun watch and it, it because i can imagine a lot of people would have missed it but it's not something that i would really go back to or highly recommend okay so this is tier three this is tier three. Well, I don't know. I mean, this is mid tier two. Tier three okay. seems like it's uh, it's barrel scraping. Yeah, I'm not sure how many tiers there are, but Albert Pian is scraping along the bottom of the let's deepest just, let's, trench. Let's assume that Al, Al, Albert Pian is tier five. Bloody hell! So that's the tiers we've got of horror. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that's called Tourist Trap, and. Yeah. That's on Prime, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is. Is it on Prime by? Is it the Full Moon Channel, Bunny Channel? Yes, it was because I had um, I had a uh, <laughs> you know I had a trial for that. I just smashed into them. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, that that was on um, that was on Full Moon. Hence the Charles Band link. But it's 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 worth a watch for a funny sort of seventies. Uh, well, not even a slasher. Just it's more so uh, more of a psychological horror than anything else. Tanya Roberts is in it. From the Beastmaster. I do not know who that is. Uh, she's just an 80s burner, really. Um, Didn't she die extremely recently? Yes, she did. She died this month. Did she? Yeah, she that's good. yeah, yeah. She, um, Maybe that's why I, I just thought of her name. She was in A View to a Kill. She was the one. There's an age gap there. It's Timothy Dalton you're thinking of. <laughs> Actually, no, that was Roger Moore's last. Oh, was it? On film, yeah. There was an age gap between him and the lady. <laughs> 23 years, I think it was. That would make sense, yeah. Yeah, because he would have been in his 50s then. 
pretty sure that Roger Moore is older than Sean Connery, and yet he took over from Sean Connery. Um, yeah. Bond. Would he be older than... No. Mm, I don't know, because Sean Connery was like 19, he died this year. How old was Roger Moore when he died a few years ago? Let's have a look. Let's see how old Roger Moore is. Go to the internet. Right. Um, well, he died in 2017, aged 89, Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, and Shawnee Boy. Is the first option. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was older than. He was a couple of years older than Sean Connery. So uh, bizarre. Sean, of course, Sean Connery's picture is him wearing a really thick turtleneck. It's like a scarf. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Anyway, <clears throat> let's move on okay. to Aliens in 1986. It's quite a long time afterwards, but. Um, so this was true, actually, because sorry, because I'm just thinking. I always think of them as being quite close together, but that's because I would have just watched them close together because yes. of my age. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. So, um, so it was, yeah, 1986, directed by James Cameron. And actually, 1986 is quite a good year because Highland Aliens... was released. <laughs> well, I was gonna say not that's uh, it, it that that was released, but also. I was going to say Predator was released and mm. and I think it was 86, maybe it was 87. But anyway, Aliens and Predator, I think they would make quite a good double bill in a way because they're both very, on the surface, they're very macho action movies, but actually both are almost anti-macho action films because they're all about very overconfident teams of macho men going into a situation where they just get their asses kicked basically but anyway we're going to go into aliens and predator later on aren't we um so this one is set 57 years after alien so ellen ripley's going to she's been floating around in space having escaped the alien in the first film spoiler alert uh and she is picked up by um like humans thankfully uh human scavengers and she recuperates but then she's told that they've lost contact with a colony on the planetoid now called lv426 and this is the little planetoid where they landed in the first one and she said well why would you do that that's a bad idea and there's like hundreds of people there um, but they've lost contact with them so she travels with a group of tough hombres um, uh, like basically space marines to go down to the planet to find out what happened, explore the facility, um, and they find that things have gone a bit awry, shall we say? And <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, basically the aliens have completely swamped the place, taken over, and now the humans, the marines, have got to fight their way off the planet. Um, to try and nuke it for a more bit. Um, there's a few little wrinkles in there that one of the people traveling with her is a company man um, called Burke, played by Paul Reiser. And he, he, he's got a plan to basically get them, get the Marines kind of infected by the aliens so he can bring samples back to, to the company, uh, Wayland Yutani, for their weapons division. So make a bit of bit of cash out of that. Um, 
so yeah um oh, and there's also they find one survivor a little girl who is the reason that ripley has to go back into the facility and face the alien queen so yeah there's a lot of what's cool about aliens is it 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 expands the mythos and the kind of lore and the world of the original idea in quite an organic way um we'll see how what happens when they do it in an inorganic way and just a load of exposition later on but for this what's cool about it is that they're not really sure what they're going to find so really they're just discovering new stuff it's not like someone is there for an info dump at the start of the movie to say oh well this is how they function this is how they they take their take human beings to implant them uh, oh and there's this new alien called a queen and stuff like that and it's uh, it looks like this we should go and get it there's none of that kind of stuff they're discovering all this stuff for themselves so you still get that kind of shock of the new type thing and there's quite a chilling moment where they work out that there are eggs being laid for example which have the face huggers in them and they're like, well, what's laying the eggs? And it's like, well, I don't know, something we haven't seen yet. And it's quite a creepy moment. So, but what's cool is that James Cameron and co, you know, they they reference these things and then they show them. So you you get to see the uh, the Alien Queen, which is a very cool design uh, later on. Um, so is this one's much more of a sci-fi action movie and it's got guns and explosions and it is... In its own way, it's almost the equal of the original. Although I must say, like, although it is an action movie, cyber action movie, there isn't actually that much kind of sustained action in it. This it still is an exercise more intention and atmosphere, just like the first one. It's a good forty-five minutes to an hour before you even glimpse an alien of any sort, sort of thing. So it's it's still got that. It's not just racing to the money shots all the time and so it still has that power of suggestion and there's still a lot of atmosphere a lot of tension building and and actually when the action comes along um there aren't that many it it isn't really sustained there aren't it, it isn't constant um constant money shots all the time actually the editing is very clever and what what you'll have is is just a sense of general chaos and very cleverly inserted um, individual shots of kind of violence or whatever which actually you don't necessarily know exactly what's going on but the power suggestion almost like informs you in your mind and you almost paint filling in the gaps in your mind because if you if you watch the initial scene where the marines go in and uh, everything kicks off really you're not really seeing much of what they're actually shooting at or the results of them shooting at it it, it's done much more through sound and editing, which is quite clever. Don't know whether it's because they perhaps they didn't have the massive budget, an infinite budget like James Cameron would now. But either way, it is the editing is quite remarkable. And the facehugger scene where Burke unleashes facehuggers to impregnate Ripley and Newt is just the stuff of nightmares. It's absolutely horrendous. It's disgusting. But not disgusting in an overly violent way. Just, again, in the it's like the idea of it. It's the idea of this ridiculous, muscular, scuttling hand trying to attach itself to your face is gross. Jeanette Goldstein, by the way, 
in this film. She plays Vasquez, right? She, mm-hmm. I, I never, it never occurred to me before that she is basically, she is a, a white Jewish woman who is essentially black facing as a Hispanic woman. It's so, there's no other way of putting it. There's no, I, I don't think they would do that these days. But I mean, she's really good and iconic, but she is not Hispanic. Um, she's as much Hispanic as she is Irish in Titanic. So, <laughs> I'm just trying to think because I've never thought about this. But how how far into James Cameron's uh, not career was all. this? Right, not okay. far at all. Which is why I th- I wonder if I think he pushed a moderate budget very far with this film. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of miniatures. Um, I I think it is to the benefit of the film the fact that. He doesn't didn't have the infinite budget he would these days, and obviously they didn't have the benefit of CGI, but it means that the action scenes tend to be quite quite brief um, and manic um, and not just relentlessly sustained. So, yeah, I mean, well, before this, what had he he'd done? He'd done <laughs> he had done <laughs> um, Piranha Two, the spawning, obviously um, oh, yeah. in the early eighties, and then he did Terminator. And then I guess that got in the gig because yeah. he, he made a small budget, got a long way with Terminator. Yeah, and that makes again, sense. I, yeah. And I mean, think about the editing of Terminator again, how amazingly efficient is that movie? So, yeah, and I, and I think it helps that it's well-written aliens as well. The characters are well-drawn and the casting is brilliant. It's perfect. Paul Reiser is just such a sleazeball. And it really plays to someone like Michael Bean, his strengths, because let's face it, he's not, he hasn't got the most range of anyone, but he's got the look and he's able to elicit sympathy because of kind of just like facial expressions, really. Uh, and he's got a good physical presence. And of course, Ripley is developed a lot from the first film and it is cool to see her like basically just strapping guns together and kicking ass. So that's cool. Um, and, and believable as well in a way that because sometimes what they can do with you know these rather cringeworthy girl power things is just having women characters do physical things which would be beyond um physical reality if you sort of mean but she just she's just a determined woman who uses these tools basically and her own courage in order to overcome the odds in the end um I like the first film, I will say, I'm not quite sure it completely nails the landing in the end, because although the battle with the Queen alien is iconic, it is also quite ridiculous. And the moment when literally the like the the alien queen is hanging onto her ankle and you've got the full vacuum of space just trying to suck her out the airlock and she's just clinging on. It's like, nah, I, I think. I think there'd be a, at least a dislocated shoulder here. <laughs> it's quite ridiculous, but you know, it's earned it, I suppose, by that point. It's a great movie, but I would say just below Alien. Okay, so uh, tier two then. Well, in terms of yeah, I mean, it's still a tier one. Movie. Oh, so the middle, the middle of tier one. Yes, yes, I would say, <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. I'm so glad that the first film is the best because some some horror film series, especially, um, I'm just thinking of film, uh, film series like Basket Case, <laughs> where 
the first film is just bad, but then the sequels are really good. But then, of course, you still need to watch the first one to understand what's going on in the sequels. But in this one, it's almost like you can basically start watching the Alien series and they will get worse. So therefore you can just <laughs> oh, stop watching when your patience runs out. <laughs> As opposed to waiting for your patience to kick in. Yeah. What, um, how long is um, Aliens? Well, it's the original theatrical cut is, I think, just over two hours. There is uh, a director's cut, but it's not worth watching. I don't think it adds anything to it. There's more scenes on. You see uh, some of the um, the colony before the aliens attack sort of thing, which I think detracts from the kind of sense of horror and mystery of being told, oh, we've lost contact. Because what's cool about aliens is that it's like, this is where we found the aliens in the first place. Colonizers were put there. Now we've lost contact. And there's a mystery in that. It's quite a, it's just a simple idea. Whereas in the director's cut, it's like you see them beforehand and it's like, and how the aliens attacked. And it's like, well, you don't need to see that, do we? The mystery is gone then. Just the mystery. Yeah. I watched The Mask, not the one with Cher and Eric Stoltz, the one with Jim Carrey from 1994. Okay. Um, And this is a weird one because. I'm a big fan of Jim Carrey's. I mean, I've seen Dumb and Dumber, and um, oh, what was the other film from 1994 that he did? The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, and Ace Ventura. Ace Ventura, and it was a weird one because I haven't seen this since I was a kid, and um, I just put it on, and I was surprised by how how kind of different it was, and how weirdly tame Carrey. I say tame. Because it's so, I'll, I'll go into it, I suppose. Because so the story is that um, uh, Jim Carrey plays someone called Stanley Ipkiss, who is uh, works in a bank, and he's a sort of a bit of a, a meek. He thinks himself as a loser, but he's just really shy, effectively. And he uh, comes across a mask that, when worn, it kind of amplifies his personality. And he's a big fan of comics and Looney Tunes, so he just becomes this chaotic force of nature with was sort of surrounded by comic book violence um yeah so compared this to uh, say dumb and dumber and i thought i get ace ventura where the ace ventura is the one where he's completely and utterly over the top right dumb and dumb is silly this is a weird one because obviously he's splitting the two halves but i remember this film being far sort of zanier than it actually yeah. is um, <laughs> uh, um so the CG in it is is good because it's cartoonist cartoonesque CG, so it's not like really bad yeah. weightless CG. Um, it's, it's more it, like kind of Foo Fighters, Roger, Roger Rabbit. Rabbit yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the the practical makeup on the mask, and especially on um, uh, Dorian Tyrell, played by Peter Green later on, who was terrifying. Um, so it, it's so needlessly scary. I don't know what rating the film is, but it, um, it's like, it's really. I never neat. understood that because he's just so. It's like he's acting in an actual like um i don't know the mafia movie like yeah. it's it's properly threatening in it <laughs> yeah but anyway sorry go on um no i didn't just just um yeah i think that's why i didn't watch it too much as a kid because i think i was generally a bit frightened because i would have been like 10 or 11 when this came out by peter green especially when he becomes the mask and he talks in this kind of breathy gasping demonic like warped voice and you know this is terrifying this whole film has been like a silly comedy um 
but I will say that it was there were some moments in this film I didn't realize how funny the bumbling sidekick to Peter Rygert, who plays the main guy, the main cop who's trying to take down the mask. The bumbling sidekick to him, I can't remember his name, is is genuinely really, really funny. He probably only speaks about five or six times in the entire film, and it's just like as a kind of comic foil. But everything he does and says is just brilliant. Like there's a bit where the famous Cuban Pete scene, where um, he just gets the whole police force dancing outside this park, and the the two cops are like not affected by everyone dancing and singing. They're like hiding in the bushes, and the 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 sort of bumbling detective starts like twirling his elbows and like dancing at the bushes, and he gets pulled back into the bushes, and his commanding officer says, "If you start dancing, I'm going to blow your brains out." And it, and it just really tickled me. And there's lots of little <laughs> things. There's lots of little things like that. That it's almost like the why. Yet yeah, Kiri is is really funny and you know sort of doing his thing. The, he's not. It's not just all about him. Like the supporting characters actually hold their own. And yeah. of course, it's the first time we see Cameron Diaz. Peter Green is oddly threatening, and yeah. it is silly and fun. But it's not as zany as I remember, which I think is good. Yeah. It's not just like a one trick pony then. It helps hold it up over time better, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um Yeah, I wonder if the the dark aspect is because he's directed by uh, Chuck Russell and he'd done um he did Dream Dream Warriors and The Blob before this. So he was obviously a well versed and which are both really good uh eighties horror films. But that might explain why it hits that tone, uh, that dark tone, as and also does the wackiness. The the Dark Horse comics as well, which I've a bit of experience with. I've only oh. read a couple of issues over the years, but that's quite dark and sort of crime driven as well. So I think yeah. it's almost like the, the this balance, and I think it does balance it well. But um, yeah, yeah, it's um, there's that darkness in the in the source material as well as from the director. So I think that's where it comes from. Yeah, and I think as well. It, this wasn't exactly prime time for comic book adaptations, but you think about something like Dick Tracy as well. That was oddly tonally unbalanced in a way. It had that, it had that kind of almost playful makeup and over the top and dark man. When you think about it, that kind Mm. of over the top tone combined with some quite dark menacing performances, dark themes, um, yeah, in a way that obviously when Marvel came along, they they very much cleaned up the um, uh, comic book genre. But uh, yeah, maybe it was maybe it's a result of you know after Batman and stuff, you know that combination of real darkness combined with over the top performances, maybe a bit of that rubbed off. I'm not sure, but. Hmm. Um, yeah, I might watch this again because I remember enjoying it. At the yeah, time. no, it's definitely, it's definitely. But I just figured that it would just—I enjoyed it at the time, and I wouldn't now. <laughs> no, absolutely, and the practical makeup is is really good. It's on on the mask and on Peter Green later on. It's it's really like clean, crisp, and neat, and um, yeah, really good. And it right. does hold up. It does hold up. And I think it's a weirdly rewatchable film. I, I can imagine watching this again right. in a few years. Yeah, cool. Well, my my wife loves it, so. It'd be a good reason to watch it again and terrify my child. Good. Okay. Um, where is that available? That was on Netflix. Okay. The Mask. Right. Not well, let's with move Eric on. Stoltz. 
Let's move on to Alien Cubed. Sorry, Alien 3. <sighs> you remember how stylized it was with Alien 3 on the poster and it had Alien and then literally three, like, like kind of up above it and it was it looked like Alien Cubed. <sighs> Bizarre. But this was the 90s, what can I say? Again, quite a long gap. This is, what, 92? Um, so another six years or so. Um, Alien 3 then. So this one pretty much starts off straight after the after Aliens. And Ripley is on her escape craft. Um, and a fire in the craft um, triggers the emergency kind of eject sequence. And basically she and her um, compatriots who survived from the first one, their pods are flung out to the nearest planet happens to be a place called fury which is a prison planet and uh she crash lands and she finds herself in this prison with a largely cockney bunch of uh skinhead prisoners um plus the odd um the odd american too uh, charles s dutton is amongst them um and he plays this kind of uh quite threatening but also essentially good-hearted preacher um and there's charles dance as well who plays a a quite gentle doctor um and basically they (coughs) land and they brought with them a face hugger of course and the face hugger it attaches itself to a dog uh and in fact, impregnates a dog, and then a new type of alien comes out of the dog and starts picking off the uh, inmates and uh, staff at this very grimy, like prison facility. Um, or in meanwhile, the company is sending a ship to pick up Ripley because they have a specific interest in her. So they've just got to try and survive until that gets there. Um. I say it impregnates a dog. In the uh, director's cut, it actually impregnates a cow for some reason. Don't mm. know why. Just a slightly different scene. But, there you go. Um, but it does mean that it's a slightly different kind of alien. Uh, it's it's sort of a bit more spindly, a bit more animalistic. Uh, it's a bit shinier. Uh, I, it also means that it seems to be rendered in really bad CGI. Oh, so, there it is. There it is. <laughs> Well, I'm not even sure it is CGI, to be honest. Maybe it is. It's this weird, like, it's clearly superimposed onto these shots and it looks bad and it doesn't look like it's there. It looks really weightless. It looks terrible. Um, But it's almost like, it's almost like it could be um, kind of advanced stop motion, but then superimposed into the scenes. But anyway, it looks terrible. So um, that's a real pity as, as it is. But then that's not all that's bad about it because there's lots that isn't great about it and and actually the there's a quite an interesting history behind alien 3 about uh, with all the different versions that they went through and i think there's even a, maybe a book which covers all these possibly a documentary but one of them one of the ideas was that it was going to be set in a huge wooden spaceship full of um these cultists essentially these crazy cultists, so which sounded like a pretty out there idea. But you can see where 
like little elements of these other ideas have obviously filtered into this what ended up being the final product which i might add was directed by david fincher possibly even his first feature film but it i he's got that classic david fincher brown aesthetic and it looks amazing sometimes other times it doesn't look so good i know he had an absolute nightmare making it because he was young and i don't think he really had that much authority on set so it sounds like it was a bit of a nightmare but regardless i mean the script just isn't that great and it's a, it's a really odd movie it's a movie which kills off most of its interesting characters early on which i found very weird like uh, i'd have to it would be spoilers to go through who dies but it is over 20 years old i suppose so i could yeah. mention that the fact that like charles dance who is quite an intriguing love interest for ripley and the first time we've really seen her taken uh, take an interest and it's an interesting relationship between those two because they because she does kind of take control of it and you can see why she would be attracted to him because he's such a different person to the other people she's met he's much more gentle much more kind kind of flawed but at the same time uh essentially a, a decent person they kill off brian glover who is who's hilarious as the um, as the governor of the place um yeah so what you've really got is charles s dutton and a load of like basically just a load of British actors who you know from other stuff. Pete Postlethwaite rocks up. Um, of course he does. It does so, a lot of the script just doesn't really make sense. Like for a good half of the movie, Ripley insists on keeping the alien a complete secret from everyone. Don't know why. Even Charles Dance, who she's just slept with, just keeps it a secret. Why? No reason. And yeah. And so there's no reason for her not to do that because it's not like any of these prisoners work for the company or anything. So why not just tell them tell them what's you know Going the threat on. that may be facing them anyway um yeah so i i mean i go back to charles dance he doesn't actually serve the plot in any way really um so again it, it's it's a strange script which doesn't really hang together I, it, it is at least as a film tonally consistent with the previous films and uh it has the same grim atmosphere and the same sense of hopelessness good charles s dutton is brilliant in this film and and i think in the end despite all of the problems with the script actually it ends up with quite an iconic ending and quite a nice way to round off the trilogy obviously it wasn't just kept to a trilogy otherwise i would be done by now so that would be it but um and yeah i think in the way it makes Ripley's particularly relevant at the end is quite it's not a bad idea in itself um the idea that she would be chosen for a very specific purpose and um is quite good and the way it reintroduces Lance Henriksen at the end is actually quite clever and I even quite like the final sequence where they're they're all pegging around the corridors being chased I know that this scene has been criticized because it's it's quite chaotic and you don't really can't really tell what's going on but i like the sense of panic that it evokes um if only it wasn't for those terrible cg shots um yeah so that's not great it does but yeah it feels like the script has gone through so many incarnations and it's come out a bit of a mess to be honest so while it ends up in a pretty cool place getting there 
is it it doesn't it feels like a lot of themes are touched upon without really hanging together it doesn't have like one consistent theme throughout it um yeah and it, it, there's a lot of inconsistent characterization in that in there it, it's not the best it's tier three alien movie making if we're going for a five tier scale which we've just come up with 10 minutes ago for no reason at all yes um mm. Yeah, this is. Um, I'm to be honest. I'm much more familiar with the Mega Drive game than the the film because I remember watching it again. I must have been in my teens, and it's weird because I what I it was almost like when they went to the Alien vs Predator, which I know you're going to talk about in a bit. I've always been much more of a Predator fan. Like I genuinely love the first, the first and second Predator films. Whereas Alien, I don't find them as or I, in my head, they're not as rewatchable, and I haven't revisited them as much as Predator. Um, right. So yeah, it's you're talking about these, and it's it's I'm borderline going back to watch them. But the third one, I remember it being very dark and a mm-hmm. bit drab, and I, and yeah, I've just I mean I've had I with a film we might get to later on. I've definitely had my fill of bad CG this week. So yeah. It really does date the film in a way that the first two aren't dated, if you see what I mean. Mm. Like, there's very few shots in the first and second films where you just kind of have that moment of like, oh, yeah, that's not great. But (sighs) there are multiple, multiple shots in Alien where it's like, please don't show me the whole Alien. Like, I, I can see that in itself it's a cool design, and I love... I love the environment that it's in, but you, when putting them together, it looks terrible. I think, yeah, the thing is, especially when it's dodgy CGI in a horror film, when it's, you know, you, they're, they're in total cowering fear of this this, yeah. this thing. And then when you see it, you think, uh, it's and, like the threat, yeah. the threat just dissipates. And, of course, the problem, the additional problem is, is that it's not like it's supernatural or anything. The appeal of the first few films anyway, is that they're very grounded and the the sense of threat to the human body is very much grounded in reality, even if even if the obviously these the locations are otherworldly, you're essentially it's a very visceral uh experience and body horror. The, sort of yeah, thing. it's almost yeah, it's almost combining that monster movie with body horror because it's like these disgusting things can happen to the body. And being attacked by this thing wouldn't be it wouldn't be sort of an instant death it'd be a horrible like scratching gnawing tearing death and when you see like this weird shiny thing uh, like entity which doesn't appear to be there at all it loses some of that oh well <laughs> um i watched a film which i know you were familiar with called pin from 1988 oh yes um, true Canadian horror film Yes, Pin a Plastic Nightmare is an alternate title for it. And this stars our boy Terry O'Quinn, um, ish, anyway. Um, he, Dr. Fran Linden, played by Terry O'Quinn, is a doctor. Um, and he's got a home office and two, two children, a boy and a girl. And he is quite a cold and distant man. But he does a sort of ventriloquist act with this dummy called Pin, which is a, a medical mannequin. And he throws his voice and talks to his kids through it and it's the only time really he shows any warmth towards them and him and his wife realize that the son is actually getting weirdly fixated on pin 
doesn't seem to realize it's his father doing a little ventriloquist act and thinks it's 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 a real thing that talks to him and so they decide to get rid of it they have a car accident uh, during which they both die and the the pin is then taken back to the house by the eldest son and he just completely loses his mind with it and just assume, and treats it like it's a real part of the family and his sister is basically trying to say you are bonkers and he is not tell them i'm not bonkers pin <laughs> Um, yeah, and the whole film is sort of a push and pull between the brother and the sister, and her trying to kind of keep his psychosis in check as he just loses it completely. Um, I did really like this, but what I did want to say is, um, at the start of the film, when Terry O'Quinn is like driving, he's, he puts Pin in the back of the car and he says to his wife, we're late, he's going to give a speech at some sort of dinner. <laughs> he's driving to this dinner, and she says, oh, come on, slow down, you're going too fast. That is an understatement for his driving, right? He is, it is like rain slicked roads in pitch black, just got like these like blind hairpin turns through this like forest. And he is swinging the car around and it's like, mm, he's not like, oh, must dash. He is pelting it. It's so, so dangerous, his driving. It really tickled me because it cuts to like external shots of the car. He's careening around these corners and uh, I just thought it was brilliant. So that tickled me. Um, but yeah, I, the, the main guy played by David Hewlett, the brother who kind of um, treats Pin like a real person and wants him to be part of the family, is it's a weirdly compelling performance because he's completely on board with it. That mild, the mild, not supernatural, but unusual element really runs through the film well because it's not a gory film. It's much more about um, a study of his, his deteriorating psyche effectively and it's done in such a slightly off way that it keeps you really intrigued until the end even though it's a pretty functional story um you do think like the other characters you know like they'll go over like his sister brings over over a boyfriend she's like oh this is this is my um you know this is my brother this is pin and and the the bad guy will be like oh hi pin and then when the brother turns around he's like gritting his teeth like whoops a daisy um and you know he's going to be brown bread within minutes but uh yeah i i really liked it and uh the the shots of the dummy the fact you never see it moving and the fact that he's completely projected through the the brother is is brilliant it doesn't it's not cheesy and you never see the dummy move it's just a tense well-made horror film that is a little bit of a hidden gem from 1988 yes very psychological in nature isn't it yeah yeah that's yeah. very cool where is that showing at the moment because i remember it being quite a difficult one to track down it was on um amazon a good. prime that's good i'm so glad definitely definitely watch that yeah it's always good when you you know so we wade through <laughs> some really questionable films and then to find something like this is brilliant uh you know I put it in the same category as something like Parents, which is another odd psychological horror film from the 80s. And it shows that the 80s wasn't just about trash teen horror. There was there there were kind of different, quite cerebral horror films happening at the same time as well. Mm. Um, I really liked it. Really liked it. Good. Well, I didn't really like Alien Resurrection. This is set 200 years after Ripley's death. Okay. So, but she's now been cloned and a new queen 
is being bred inside her by a new company now, but basically the same evil company. So she's sort of a test subject. They, they've they got these um, alien, these caged aliens they're doing tests on. Um, so one day this, this motley bunch of traders come along, Captain Michael Wincott, Ron Perlman's <laughs> amongst them, Winona Ryder. They rock up. Uh, things go wrong. The aliens escape. And basically this, so the, this bunch of, basically just a bunch of mercenaries, they, they got to team up with a super powered Ellen Ripley in order to escape. Um, is, there a, is there a scene in this where um, Michael Wincott gathers everyone around and sings a beautiful aria in a, in like a really crisp falsetto for everyone to enjoy? No, no. He just growls at people in a really rough, deep baritone voice. Okay, okay. Um, I think I still got it mixed up with someone else. Um, um, Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon. Uh, oh, is of, it? Mm, he wrote this film. Um, and I, as struggle, you know, I struggle with the winkiness of that man. Mm, well, because he's now known for stuff like Serenity and Avengers. <laughs> so, and he does that sort of stuff well for what it is, because obviously it's quite jovial and winky and it's all about the banter in it and stuff so now joss whedon he actually said he hated this movie he called it unwatchable Uh, i'd have to agree with him on that part he blamed it on um uh the director the uh french director was his name uh jean-pierre caro the guy did delicatessen anyway um you know, he did, he, he did, he did Delicatessen, which was, frankly, I mean, it, it's a very unique, it's a unique film, Delicatessen, and it's quite grotesque, but it's very uh, absurdist in style. Um, and so you can see why it would be a bad fit anyway for a, a, a franchise which had been built on a very serious tone if you sort of mean but mm. i think that as well joss whedon's script i don't see how you could film it really any other way because it invites silliness so i'm not really sure what he's expecting from this i mean ripley is just a different character essentially now she's gone from being this resourceful and resilient professional to this quipping flirtatious super anti-hero uh, who can leap great distances and uh, whatever how how long after the last film was this made this like 97 or something 97 yeah oh it is 97 okay yeah um i it's so for example it is an example of like ripley and how she's how it's it's deviated from her character so much she finds out at one point that one of the other characters is synthetic so um as in a robot and she says to them oh i should have known no human is that humane, right? So she's basically saying it's a pretty dumb line anyway. But also consider the fact that Ripley is someone who is who's been betrayed by robots before, tried to be killed by robots before. Okay, she befriended Bishop in the second film, but but basically, and but then she saw the the human version of Bishop come along and tried to like farm some aliens inside her so clearly she's got problems with robots with synthetics and their intentions and that 
And yet here she is saying to this synthetic, oh, no human is as humane as you. It's like, well, she wouldn't. That's not her character, is it? That's that doesn't reflect her experiences of robots. Does it? It's a stupid no. line. Um, Winona Ryder is, I guess, is almost like she's sort of taking over the Ripley role, but she doesn't have the authority of Scorny Weaver, Winona Ryder, because she's still very young at this point and mm, it doesn't she doesn't quite sell it um yeah i i'm i'm up for fresh ideas but just turning the the film into in an absurdist comedy with winking schlock horror was always a bad idea it's kind of like watching guardians of the galaxy or something but but with swearing instead of jokes really um there's one scene which could have been a classic horror moment where they discover this room or this facility on the ship which is full of failed experiments so it's like mutant clones essentially and it's mm. really grotesque and the the makeup effects are really cool and it's horrendous but of course by that point you're just waiting for the punchline really because it's that kind of movie it's like this could have been like a really oppressively dark and horrifying moment but it would have to have been done in the style of the previous installments in order to achieve that here it just comes across as silly like everything else um yeah and I, I mean it's not even as if it's such a bad idea the concept of finally getting to see what the company what the evil company itself would do with this alien technology and in its research that in itself is quite sound concept but it's just the tone of it which lets it down uh oh and Le- leyland orserin's in it of course he i like will, leyland yeah i don't know if you'll believe this but he plays a nervous wreck i don't know if that's bizarre <laughs> you've seen oh. Him before. uh oh and by the way that the final design the design of the final monster in this film is it's probably the worst design i've seen of a monster in a film of this scale and budget it's oh okay unbelievably bad it looks ridiculous uh like some i guess it's meant to look like some sort of huge innocent grotesque baby or something but i don't know i don't oh, know i think i, I think i picture this in my mind is it like um it's got like a like a like a skull face like a like a yeah. almost wide-eyed face yes yes and it's meant to have these kind of innocent eyes mm. behind it it's just weird and it, it just it's creepy but not in the way they intended i don't think <laughs> Um, so yeah, Alien Resurrection, this was, it's quite, I, I didn't think much of Alien 3, to be honest, but at least it, 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 if, if Alien 3 had been followed up by something great, then it would have been like, okay, you know, you can, you can, you can work through Alien 3 and just accept it for what it is, but it, it's a real, it's a real step down even from Alien 3. It's really bad. Okay, and and not Still like um, the worst. Sorry. <clears throat> well, is it not even? Is it not enjoyable on like a trashy level? If you uh, if you remove if you remove your experience from the Alien films, I'm just really just gonna... trying. Yeah, I was really trying, but I don't know whether it's really possible to remove yourself. I think probably because of the presence of Sigourney Weaver. I think because she's so front and center in it. And yet such a different character. I just don't know why they bothered. Why be Ripley if mm. if she's going to be this comp- like completely different character 
Um, it's really odd. Um, yeah, I I did try to watch it just as an enjoyable trashy horror, and uh, it's always nice seeing Ron Perlman. Always do anything, but yeah, and he is Danny John Jules. He is uh, I do like a bit of Ron, but yeah, I I don't see this is um yeah this is the problem is that I I'm just getting like vibes of Blade Three uh, yeah. as you talk yeah I watched a bad film as well Rupert um oh. this was actually recommended to us by one of our listeners we shall give him a pseudonym Sexy Dave um and this is a 2020 film called Ava starring Jessica Chastain, uh, Common John Malkovich and Colin Farrell. And this film is bad. And it's bad for, like, very bizarre reasons. So the the basic plot is that Jessica Chastain, Jessica Chastain is a, a hit woman, you know, an assassin uh, for the government. And she effectively just starts asking her targets, like, what they've done to, to be have a hit on them. And they invariably just don't tell her. And they don't know what they've done wrong. And then she just shoots them. And that's it. And then John Malkovich, as his sort of handler, says, can you stop asking them what they've done and just shoot them? That'd be great. And uh, she says, oh, okay. And then she doesn't. She just asks them again. So Colin Farrell then is brought in as John Malkovich is another one of his sort of protégés. And he puts out a hit on Ava. So from that basic setup, you would think this is like a, a 90 minute action packed thriller where it's just her desperately trying to stay alive using her skills, experience and wits, taking down Colin Farrell and leaving that life behind and moving to a new one. Right. What actually happens is it's just two hours of her having awkward conversations with her family and and these conversations with Gina Davis, who plays her mum, who has had, as the French are so want of saying, work done. <laughs> um, it's just her talking to her mum, and her mum saying, oh, where have you been for the last 20 years? And her like, looking at a spoon and saying, oh, nowhere really. And then her sis talking to her sister, and her sister saying, so what have you been up to? And she's oh, the much. It's like, is this, what kind of film is this? Um there's it's a weird mix of of many things because for instance she the 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 main thing the main thrust of this film isn't to do with her being an assassin at all it's the fact that her sister is now married to common who basically used to go out with jessica chastain so they meet up and it's instantly obvious from the way that they meet up. And he's like, oh, hi, I haven't seen you in a while, when she sort of tries to go back to her old family. Um, and it's very clear that she used to have a relationship with him, and he is now with her sister. But that is yes. instantly clear. And yet, later on in the film, it, it's like it re- sort of reveals that they used to go out together as if it's something mm. we wouldn't have worked out. And you're like, no, I, I knew oh that. God. All the characters are unlikable. Common is is supposed to be with her sister but then there's a bit later on when she uh she's out playing a gig or something and jessica Chastain just comes in and with a bag of money and just starts kissing him passionately and says i'll oh, just come away with me we'll just you know we'll just go away and he says and after kissing her and almost having sex with her he says oh, i can't because your sister's pregnant with my baby oh. and then 
and I thought, oh, so if she wasn't, then you would have just shot off with her then and completely like left everyone in the lurch. So all the characters are unlikable. Colin Farrell just seems like he's taking the mick a little bit because he's just walking around wearing like purple turtlenecks <laughs> and smirking at everyone. There's an awkward fight scene with Colin Farrell and John Malkovich where John Malkovich nearly wins in a one-on-one <laughs> fist fight with a man 30 years younger than him. Um, it's just... I was just going to ask if John Malkovich is delivering his performance via telephone. <laughs> no, he is doing it via pager. It's just a series of beeps off screen. Um, <laughs> it's just... It's just, And they would do this awkward thing where it's... I don't know if it's supposed to be cool, where whenever Jessica Chastain talks to um, Colin Farrell or John Malkovich, they talk about what they do as assassins almost as if it's like they work for a bank so he'll say oh um i've spoken to the board and apparently the asset uh wants to put in a vat return and then she'll say well i tried to give him a court summons but apparently he was on a extended lunch break and you're like what what just say you shot him and you missed your silly tart and it's just it, all this like really tedious, long-winded dialogue goes on for a while. And in between all of this, there's constant references back to Jessica Chastain a few years ago when she apparently was like a like a real serious, hard-drinking drug addict who completely threw her life out of the window, went off the radar, and then got picked up by the military and, and sort of cleaned up, put her where she is. And I kept on thinking, why aren't I watching that film? <laughs> what, like that would be far more interesting than you having awkward conversations with your sister in a restaurant. Um, so yeah, well, that's a, as a real screenwriting crime is to make reference to it, evoke the better film that we should be watching. Yeah, they're constantly saying, I "Remember when this happened and that, and then you did all this, and you were super cool, and then you disappeared, and you're like, yeah, yeah, can I see that? And not this, not you talking about it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just a really boring film, and." it's just nonsense from start to finish i kept on i felt like it never got in gear and i, I just thought why is this made like a family drama why are we focus on these boring conversations so there's no there's no reason to watch it it does also try and do this thing that when there's the um the quite sort of visceral fist fight scenes kind of like in haywire where gina well i've forgotten her name uh gina something gina, not gina davis gina not corona you know the woman corona um, Carano has a fight with Michael Fassbender and yeah. it tries to do that where she like for instance she, fight, she fights Colin Farrell in a fist fight and yeah. there's no music and it's just quite thin but it, it just doesn't there's no because there's no steam to the rest of the movie you just yeah. feel like you're just watching two people quietly just have an awkward scuffle so no yeah. oh dear that's a pity because I have this has been recommended to me but not by you. Um, where, <laughs> where might one watch that? Is that on Netflix? This is on Netflix, yeah. Yeah. Um, the best part of it was I get to briefly see Johan Griffith because I generally haven't seen him for a very long time. <laughs> it's good to see him again. It's like catching with <laughs> old friends, isn't it? Um, <laughs> AVP, colon, Alien versus Predator is a mostly boring 2004 spin-off made in uh, made by Paul W.S. Anderson uh, he of Resident Evil fame and it's not very good you say 
weird, isn't it? So this big temple is found buried under the ice in Antarctica. I think it's Antarctica. Um, this team is sent in to investigate. There are ritual monuments and traps everywhere. Meanwhile, predators arrive on Earth, and they're here for sport, But and they end up following the team into the temple. So we have this big ruckus waiting to happen between humans, aliens, uh, and predators. There's this preposterous backstory which explains that the predators bred the aliens to be the ultimate sport. So this is clearly like a spin-off. It's not meant to be canon with the rest of the um, alien films, certainly. Um, it's kind of like Indiana Jones or, or something like National Treasure, but with monsters, because there's loads of traps and shifting ceilings and uh, floors and stuff in this remarkably advanced temple and the characters who arrive there they're not they're not really marines or anything they're they're not just experts on aztec mythology they one of them in particular seems to have a, a psychic understanding of the entire predator mythology having a full comprehension of the rules of its <laughs> mysterious past based purely on looking at some alien murals. He works it all out for himself, just instantly. <laughs> Stupid script. But, it's yeah, it's flashily directed, kind of like Resident Evil in that regard. There's this rhythm uh, that Anderson prefers of, it's like action, exposition, action, emotion, action. And it's like, it's like a sad old clock becoming more miserable with every tick and Dirt? it's <laughs> it is hopelessly dark for a film where actions speak louder than words and I, what i mean is dark not as in tonally dark but literally you cannot see things and it's not even the darkest of the <laughs> alien films um the editing is just really choppy the main woman uh, played by someone called Sana Lathan. She is quite authoritative. I quite liked her. And Colin Salmon's in it, and he's sexy and suave as always. I still think he should have been Bond, but maybe they weren't ready for a black Bond at that point. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so it does... Anderson is quite good at delivering what you'd expect in his films. Like, you do get proper showdowns between the aliens and the predators, so you do get that. And there is a surprising amount of practical effects amongst the shoddy CGI. So, and I, I must admit, I initially quite liked how utterly outmatched the humans were um, and the wanton way in which they're dispatched up to a point. But the, of course, the problem is with that is that because the humans are so outmatched, it means that every encounter involving a human they the only way out that they have to get out of it is to be rescued at the last minute by the other type of alien so if they've got a, an alien bearing down on them you know a predator will come in and attack if there's a predator coming towards them you know an alien's going to jump on his back and that really is it and so the film really struggles to make the humans actually relevant other than explaining the mythology and the way it gets around this problem is preposterous because the woman ends up befriending a predator as a bodyguard um now what? there is seriously he, she just and they kind of communicate through sign language and <sighs> there is no reason why this predator would treat her any differently to the other humans 
Like there is absolutely no, it would just because she's unarmed and incapable of fighting back, just kill her. That's what they do. That's the whole thing about predators. They don't, it's not like they think they take pity. In fact, they're more likely to leave the tough guys alive because they're the ones that they, that produce the best sport. She's not capable of doing that. They would kill her. She would die. So that's ridiculous. Anyway. The thing is, the fact they're hunting humans for sport um, mm-hmm. and then befriending them, that's like mm-hmm. that's like me befriending a duck and <laughs> and like treating it as an equal because it hasn't got a knife and I was going to eat try it. To... <laughs> then trying to communicate with it. Just yeah. following you along. I also uh, just want to say as well that you um, you said that it is ridiculous that he has almost a psychic command of the language just from looking at a few yes. murals on a wall. I just find that hard to believe when you know for a fact that I learned all of the languages in mainland Europe by looking at a recipe for Moule Marnier. <laughs> it's no different. Exactly. Yeah, silly me. Um, th- uh, this... The weird thing about this is it's really not gory at all. It's it's an alarmingly bloodless alien film, which is weird. Like there's a moment when there's a chest burster scene um, and it just kind of pops out of her shirt like a Halloween toy. It's really bizarre. So um, and, I, and, you know, it's like we've already discussed. I do feel that the alien movies need gore because because like we said, they, they almost they're almost body horrors in a way. And they, they do typically play into our anxieties about the human body. For example, the whole idea of something, just something awful gestating inside us and destroying us from within. And I think, so it needs a certain level of gore in order to have that shock factor. This film has no interest in that whatsoever. It's uh, very much uh, a teen friendly, almost children friendly, but like a teen friendly action thriller and i would put it just above alien resurrection purely because it's it felt shorter and it's so removed from the previous films that it it doesn't feel um intrusive in any way it's just like it exists and of course it's just cool seeing predators uh use their special traps and tricks so but it isn't a very good film. Is it better than Resurrection? Uh, the it's better than Resurrection. Do you mean is it better than Requiem, the the, the sequel? Oh, okay. Well, I suppose we'll find that out. I'll we'll find yes, that out. Yes, we will find that out. But yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> we just found out. Yes, it's. I I enjoyed it more than Alien Resurrection because it's its own thing it's a spin-off i think if it tried to somehow play into the canon of the previous films it would have been a disaster they've just gone completely off of the deep end done their own thing uh, which was wise um so that's that i i watched clive owen in 2007 movie shoot him up which i th- sure i've seen before um and I didn't like it, Rupert. <laughs> I didn't, didn't like it at all. Well, that's a lie, actually. So the, the the plot is that Clive Owen plays a drifter, an unnamed drifter, who's constantly eating carrots, really, really irritatingly. Um, and he sees a pregnant woman running away from a gangster who's after her with a gun. And he rescues her just after she gives birth during a shootout, which is quite a cool scene. 
Um, and he takes it upon himself to look after the baby. She dies during the shootout, and he's looking after the baby and just trying to find out why Paul Giamatti, Ovs, is after the baby and so desperate to kill it. Um, it's effectively a long shootout. And when I was watching this film, probably with a frown on my face, Faye said, why aren't you enjoying this? It's just lots of people shooting guns. And I thought, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, this is right up my street. But for every really over-the-top, silly, cartoonish shoot out every word that everyone says in this film is cringeworthingly bad. Mm. Um, the I assumed when I was watching it, because some of the dialogue, I assumed that it was written by someone who was like, in their like teens or twenties. No, mm. Michael Davis, the writer director, is in his was in his mid to late forties at the time, and Jeez. it's inexcusable. It does that thing of constantly trying to be cool. It's like people sitting around smoking weed and saying, "Oh, can you imagine? Uh, okay, Clive Owen and Monica Bellucci are having sex, and then as she reaches orgasm, he's just like people burst in and he's like shooting them as he's still thrusting." And you're like, "Hmm, like." That may maybe cause a giggle when you're a teenager, but now it's just like it's just a bit awkward and just a bit silly, and it it always fell on the wrong side for me of like not being amusing. It just felt really childish. Um, mm. The dialogue there's a bit because of course Clive Owen's constantly eating carrots throughout the film. He kills two men by just shoving carrots into their eyes and stuff. There's a sequence when he catches up with Paul Giamatti and Paul Giamatti says, "Oh, you really are a wascally wabbit," and you're like, "Oh, just stop, stop with this dialogue." There's a scene where the, he's driving with Monica Bellucci, who's like a milk. Um, what are they called? Not a work wet nurse. And he, yeah, she's like feed, feeding the baby, and they're driving along, and then there's just a scene where. This car like overtakes him without indicating, and then he does a little thing about, oh, don't you just hate pricks like that who indicate? All you have to do is move your finger one inch. Look, I can do it. And you think, stop talking. Stop saying these things that are supposed to be cool. And it's almost like they're inserting moments of observational comedy into it. So people can go, oh, yeah, you know, people indicate it is irritating, and they don't indicate. But it's not interesting, is it, in a film? So... Yeah, I just felt like it was written by someone who was trying to be cool, and it didn't help that the soundtrack is written by largely new metal bands. Oh. Um, the level of writing is to the point that when they're in a safe house for a brief moment, and Clive Owen turns the TV on and the baby's crying, and a metal band comes on TV and the baby goes mm. quiet, he he deduces that the mother must have lived above a rock club, and then they just find one. What? I know. Like, if that if the, the whole film though isn't that silly like okay, yeah. I don't care about leaps in plot logic I was just shocked by how many times everyone spoke and I just cringed the shootout scenes are fine you know it's lots of gunny gunny shoot shoot um, and but it's just the dialogue it's so bad that it actually made me just want to turn it off I did sit through to the end mm. but I was surprised that it gets uh, such a positive like response to it when it was just a bit embarrassing I thought oh god yeah it's it's got that dad at the disco thing going on isn't it where it's like an older writer director trying to trying to get down with the kids sort of thing and yeah just calling it shoot him up for a start i mean it's like like that's what kids that's the games that kids play in it it's like oh come on it it's like that you remember that um what was that awful film we watched uh where the cop teams up with the girl recently um oh. where and she's uh, like a vlogger oh god that one with um aaron eckhart aaron eckhart yeah 
remember it was the same thing with that where we thought oh it must be like a young person now it's just an old it it was like a middle-aged guy trying to trying to appeal to what it is that kids are into these days sort of thing (sighs) bloggers they love that and of course you bring that to you know uh you'd bring that to a producer studio and say you know do you want to get this film made? This is what the kids are into. And then they'll probably look at their, I don't know, their metrics on the screens and say, oh, yeah, they are into vlogging. So so they'll love this. This will be a massive hit because this is what kids like. Awful. Hate oh, yeah. oh, it's just, yeah, real zeitgeist chasing crap. Um, all right. Let's talk about something else crap. Let's talk about AVPR. Aliens versus Predator Requiem. God, it's a cumbersome title, isn't it? This is made in 2007 by the Brothers Strauss. They also made something called Skyline, which I've never seen, but it got like a D minus amongst US audiences, which is a shocker. That's really I bad. Skyline, that's the one with, um, what's his name? Eric something, isn't it? Stoltz? <laughs> no, not, not Stoltz, not Banner. Um, Eric, oh God, he's got like a long face. He kind of looks like a stretched Matthew Lillard. Is it Eric Kareleniak? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Okay, carry on. But, yeah, it's crap. Oh, yeah. Skyline is crap. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is crap as well. This is... Uh, so, this is set... At least the first AVP, although it was set in the like the modern world, like contemporary, our world, at least it was in a, an unusual place. What this does is relocates the whole alien thing into um a small town in middle america i don't know montana or something i guess i don't know anyway so it and what's really noticeable here particularly is that the problem is that you remove the sci-fi element completely so all of that world building and futurist speculation is completely gone from the first say three films or four of a push and it and what it does is it, it strips these films of any kind of foundational vision if you see what i mean so there's a whole layer of imagination just not in it at all um and i don't know whether these avp films are based on comic books or whatever and i don't care but that would just mean the comic books are flawed as well because it's a flaw as far as i'm concerned anyway the, so the predator ship lands on earth into a small <laughs> midwest town uh, where teenagers are fighting and law enforcement is overstretched. It's all highly original. Uh, the Predator ship, Predator ship had aliens on board, so they run rampage. The facehuggers are impregnating homeless people. All, it's all going wrong. And I, I guess the central concept of aliens arriving on Earth was something which was always going to happen, but they, they, which isn't a bad thing in itself, but they delivered it in the blandest way possible. Um, See. So you, you take basically two of the hitherto most beloved monsters in modern cinema and put them into a teen slasher, basically. Hmm. And when I talked about the last film being dark, like like in front of your eyes, this is one of the darkest films I've ever seen. It's like a silhouette puppet show. It's astonishing. <laughs> and then, of course, you chuck in some bad direction, really choppy editing, and it's literally not comprehensible. You cannot oh. work out what's happening. And... It's just dumb. I mean, it's got stupid slasher tropes of people doing stupid stuff all the time. Like this kid, this kid gets bullied and his keys get chucked down a storm drain. 
right? So, of course, he goes back out at night, at night, to climb into a sewer to find them. At night. What are you doing? Why go there at all? But also, at night, it's stupid. Anyway, so endless scenes early on of people just looking for other people or looking for keys in the woods, in the sewers, or there'll be predators looking for aliens in the sewers. It just goes on and on. And then by the end, it devolves into chaos. And But the writing's so bad that it's just the people are just faceless, like organisms skulking around in the dark, trying to get to a chopper. Sorry, da chopper. Um but do we care if they make it? I don't think so. I don't think we do. And it does. It ends with this hopelessly um, optimistic nod to a sequel, which thankfully never came. Um, so it has no distinctive characters, no broader themes, no atmosphere, no intelligible excitement, no horror, no humour. It is the worst of the series by a good distance. I say no horror. It has got one moment which I have to mention because our friend Sexual Dave is a big fan of this scene. <laughs> I, I'm joking. He's not a fan of this scene. It's this disgusting scene where a pregnant woman is impregnated by an alien and it bursts out of her stomach through her baby. And it's like, okay, so we went from like the first AVP being weirdly bloodless to this one just being unpleasant. Um <laughs> So combining like trash horror with really, really unpleasant, just violence for the sake of violence. Um, and yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> that, yeah. I, I, this Is this the one that my brother always says has got the line in it where they one of them's going to like a hospital and one of them's going to a helipad or something and they say, I hope we're both wrong. <laughs> and so what? So you, we all die? <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like I, I don't remember that specific line, but it sounds like the kind of nonsense that would be spouted in this. I am going to come up to one of the worst films that I've ever seen now. Okay. Um, uh, so strap yourself in. Still a civil war, it is then. Okay. <laughs> it's actually ne- Nemesis for Tears of a Dying Angel or whatever it was called. Um, this is a haunted house, uh, which is a sort of parody film starring Marlon Wayans produced or written and starring Marlon Wayans this is awful I mean I remember the scary movie films and I think I watched one of those and thought no but I don't know why I fancied like a a, a parody film and I thought I'll just chuck this on blindly and it is crap <laughs> real wonderful crap it's a footage, uh, sorry, a parody of found footage stuff, basically uh, like Paranormal Activity Rex. It's made in 2013, and there's no plot because I'm not. There's no point talking about the plot because how Marlon Wayans appears to make films is he gets his mates round in a house and he says to them all, "Right, it's a haunted house, right?" And then he just films them doing stuff, but doesn't edit it and just keeps all of the takes in the film. So what you end up watching is effectively like a really bad comedy skit stretched out over 80 minutes, but you see the same joke like 10 to 15 times. Um, so like as a, as an example of this, right. Um, there's a scene where his girlfriend moves in with him and 
she says, oh, let me just go and you know slip in at something more comfortable. So he's just in his pants and he just starts sort of joke raping these this teddy bear on the bed as if to say a horny is right she's like yeah you're shagging it like oh yeah come with you to come back baby you're gonna get some of this and then it'll cut and he'll have two of the teddy bears and then it'll cut again and he'll have a dildo and two teddy bears and then one of the and it just cuts and cuts and cuts and you think this this joke wasn't funny four minutes ago when it started and then she'll walk in and have like loads of makeup on and a hearing curlers to go to bed and then he'll scream and that'll be the joke that she's not she's not getting ready to be sexy she's she's actually getting ready for bed this is a film where a character will be introduced and you can tell what the joke is but there's a bit where he hires a paranormal sort of psychic to come around and, and cleanse the house that's supposedly haunted and when the door opens the guy speaks with a slight lisp and i thought the joke is going to be that he is a gay man that fancies marlon wayans that's the joke and surely enough he'll sit down and he'll make a joke about how he fancies marlon wayans and Marlon Wayans will pretend to not notice it. And then it'll just cut, not even not even a flowing scene, it'll just cut to another take. And he'll just say the same thing in a slightly different way. And it'll go on about eight or nine times. It was awful. The only saving grace in this film was Cedric the Entertainer turns up as a priest, and everything mm. he says is solid gold. And it is lucky, because yes, like everything else in the film, he says the same thing in a slightly different way about ten times. Luckily, it's funny. Um... It's crap. Know. It's crap. There's a scene. I, I've never seen it, any of the scary movie f- films. To be honest, I mean, they cannot be worse than this. Um, there's okay. a scene where uh, one of his friends turns up with his like hot wife, and he clearly wants to have like a, a four way with them as a couple. And again, they're in a pool talk, and he says, "Do you want to have a four way?" And Marlon Wayne says, "No." And it'll cut, and he'll just say it in a slightly different way, and it just goes on and on. So even if a joke is mildly funny. It's ruined, like ruined by the fact you're just watching multiple takes of it. There's no editing. There's 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 no plot, and so there's no flow. So what'll happen is you'll have a scene where they see a ghost, so they actually see a ghost, and it'll be something crass, like he gets anally raped by the ghost, and then you'll have him like crying in the bath, sort of thing, mm. and then and then it'll cut to the next scene, and he'll act like they haven't seen anything because it's just so clunkily put together. This film cost two and a half million dollars and grossed over 60 million and they knocked out a sequel i honestly i do not know who watches these films and finds them funny they it's so not funny apart from like maybe one joke in the 90 minutes you watch the that pattern of repeating stuff over and over again that's almost anti-comedy in a way isn't it because you take something you take something which may initially be funny and work it until it's just completely dried up and lost any flavor or humor whatsoever. But that is the point of it. That's obviously the style. It's not like, yeah, it's every joke is driven into the ground. A joke that isn't funny. Not, and not in a, a kind of Stuart Lee kind of way. I'm taking it. I, I, I imagine the humor is level of subtlety. equivalent to Stuart Lee. no. Right. You talk. You're talking about a, the guy who plays Champ. I think his name's like David Kochner, uh, who plays Champ in um, know, yeah, the one. the uh, Anchorman films. Yeah. He turns up and he has like one funny scene where he's talking about how he's fitting in webcams and he makes a, tells a story about like how oh yeah you see lots of stuff you know when you fit webcams like you know you, you see a wife getting nailed by two milkmen for example and like it's got like a quite funny bit you're like haha but then he'll just say the same joke a few times but then there's a bit where he just he's asking Marlon Wayans if he can 
say the n-word to him mm. and it just goes on for like two or three minutes and you think what what like you you both of these men are in their 50s you, you God, know that looks good but it's it's oh it's painful really painful where would i watch that if i had a particular self-harming tendency it would be on netflix rupert i mean you can enjoy the sequel you can watch the sequel and let me know what you think i'm i was generally i could i i was shocked when i was watching this film i was shocked by how unfunny it was and how and how completely low rent low hanging fruit every single joke was it's unbelievable someone will walk into shot and you can pause it and you can tell exactly what's going to happen in that scene and what the joke is going to be and probably how many times you're going to see it as well yeah i probably won't watch the sequel to be honest oh okay or indeed this film um <laughs> prometheus we're almost up to date prometheus was directed by ridley scott in 2012 um something slightly worrying i discovered was that um it's written by or co-written by someone called john spates who recently has written the dune adaptation which is a bit concerning because i was looking forward to that and the script in this film isn't really good uh the very basic plot is that um this team find uh they they find these clues uh in the cave to the origin of mankind so they bugger off um they on a mission um with a motley crew and to a, this distant moon um financed by wayland of the wayland yutani corporation um who's very old played by guy pierce for some reason and so they they go to this moon and they land and then they realize that there are living things there um which want to get inside them and burst out of them in classic alien style <laughs> so this is i mean we've talked about we've obviously gone through a pretty bad run of like resurrection avp one and two this is junk of a different type it's like it's high-minded yet completely stupid at the same time the script is just terrible not just in terms of the moment-to-moment dialogue but also the relentless like just tirade of exposition which continues right up until the last 20 minutes by the way it's constantly scene setting and mythologizing and it goes on about the genesis of life and all that um but but how can characters this stupid hope to comprehend these kind of questions because <laughs> like they they go on about this stuff like the genesis of life but then they'll they'll do the most stupid things like they'll be on this alien planet and just where they don't know what you know what's what kind of microbes are in the air they don't know what's going on there so but they're like oh the air's breathable let's take our helmets off yeah brilliant and then there'll be like this clearly menacing snake-like creature will present itself to them so one of them will just go over and just try to pet it we'll go oh you look cute it's like it's it's standing upright with like this weird proboscis aimed at you and you're just like oh yeah let's go and pet it it's ridiculous these are they're the tropes of trash horror and yet prometheus is declaring these big ideas as if it's something greater than that and that's when i realized that it's the inverse of what the original alien was which is interesting the last alien movie that scott directed and Mm. because 
you think about what the original Alien was. It was a B movie, right? It was a B movie concept uh, monster movie, but elevated by these other elements, uh, the character's intelligence, their bravery and their resourcefulness, the fact that they acted like real people in that situation, um, and or at least real professionals anyway. So it it was it was real feeling people, if you like, thrust into a B movie situation. This is the contrary to that. Prometheus presents itself as a, a serious piece of speculative sci-fi, but then its actors, its characters act like they're in a B movie. So it's the opposite, but that doesn't work at all. And, and it, it commits the screenwriting crime, which we've talked about before. And it again is, a, is a real trope of bad horror, which is that of it, presents characters who from the very start will just um, have this forced drama and conflict between them for no particular reason. Yeah. Um, and I know that they're all, they're different. The crew members obviously taken from different um, disciplines and that fine, but they're instantly each other's throats for no reason whatsoever. Uh, and they're just constantly arguing instantly. And, you know, and if, if this Whalen guy with his infinite funds was sending these people halfway across the galaxy on the most important mission in human history, surely he would use some of those unlimited funds to send them on a team-building weekend or something beforehand, <laughs> not just shove them in a ship, put them to sleep, and then be like, I'll wake up and get and shake hands sort of thing, you know? And which is quite tragic because actually the cast is really, really good. You know, it's got like Idris Elba, it's got Charlize Theron. Uh, and Fassy, Fassy, Fass, Fass. Of course, Fassy. Fassy boy, who's brilliant as David, the uh, the android, best thing in it. Um, but the fact that they can't make a single one, these actors, they can't make a single one of these characters convincing only condemns the script further. And I don't know why Wayland is played by Guy's Pierce and made up to look so old. I don't know why he's not just cast. Why didn't they just cast I an old actor? I do know this, actually. Um well, I listened to an interview with Mark Marin and Guy Pierce, right. of Guy Pierce with Mark Marin, and he said that um, it was he was he said it was a nightmare to film because he was in this makeup for ages and he was only ever yeah. needed on set for like a few minutes a day, so he would just put makeup on, sit in his trailer for hours, and then say, <laughs> oh, "We don't need you today," and have it all taken off. He says apparently the reason he was cast is because there was a scene in the film where Fassy Fassy Fast Fast Boy Bye Bye puts on a headset and speaks to a young Wayland, right? And, but that was removed. And it's just you just see the scene with him in a headset talking and you can just tell he's talking to him because you can hear his voice. So you're looking at Fassy, Fassy, Fast, Fast. But obviously here in them. Wow. Guy it's Pierce, really look, distracting and pointless. It doesn't need. He didn't need to be in the film. Even he admits it. He's like, I didn't need to do that. It's a weird one. I mean, Christopher Lee was still going strong at that time. He could have rocked up. He could have done it. He would have been appropriately aged. Gary Boosie would, would have done it. <laughs> that would have been amazing. That would have been the Gary Boosie resurgence, wouldn't it? Um, and finally... <laughs> Gary Boost, if you will. <laughs> um, um, it, the, it doesn't look good. This film doesn't look good either. That's the other thing. And which is surprising for Ridley Scott, who's usually such a good visual artist. It It's weirdly over bright. It has this plasticky kind of sheen. It's kind of... It looks a bit cheap, like early 2000s sci-fi, you know, like Mission to Mars or something. Mm. It, I think they're going for this sort of ultra-sleek, futurist style. 
which is fine. But then you think, well, J.J. Abrams managed to make that sleek, futuristic style, shiny. It, it made that look convincing and cinematic in Star Trek in 2009. So why does Prometheus look like a TV pilot? Is that in 2015 or something like that it came out? Prometheus? Yeah. 2012. So, I mean, oh, it wow. was... Yeah. There's no real excuse. It's just it's just a bad movie. <laughs> it's, it's quite uh, bloated as well, isn't it? Yeah. I remember being in the cinema, and I, like I said, I'm not as hip-steep in the alien mythology as a lot of people, but I just remember feeling like I was constantly being talked down to by people constantly making stupid decisions. Yes. Like, they, they talk about all this high-minded stuff, and then they just do something utterly stupid. <laughs> I don't like being patronised by you. I don't deserve it. I deserve better. And, yeah. And and I haven't even mentioned the fact that the whole concept behind it, it aggravates me because it's another thing where it's like, you remember the space jockey scene from the original Alien? And I think Ridley Scott has literally said this. It's like, oh, you remember that scene? We we thought, isn't everyone wondering where that came from? what the story is behind the space jockey and the original alien. And I was thinking, no, no one was thinking that. They watched the original alien and thought, well, this is a cool design and it's mysterious. And let's keep its mystery. Let's keep that sense of mystery, that eeriness of this alien civilization that you know nothing about and you don't need to know anything about because your imagination can do that for you. No, he thinks we want to see how these people lived. You're wrong. <laughs> Would you say it's the worst film Ridley Scott has made? Oh, I'm not sure about that. I'd have to, I'd have to work through his filmography. He must have done worse. <laughs> I mean, White Squall didn't exactly set his light, did it? Um, so you've got one more in your in your films. Then is that your last one? Then you're going to do? I've got one more. Yeah, after this. Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll skip ahead then. I'm going to choose one because um, it kind of leads on nicely from that. Um, and we'll we'll catch up with these uh, later in the week. I watched a film called DNA from 1997 starring Mark Dacascus and Jürgen Prochnoff. <laughs> um, and this... I can see why you chose that movie to watch. Because <laughs> I fancy Mark Dacascus. Um, this film, the CG in this film, is it is bewildering. It is bewildering. The the story is that Mark Dacascus is yes a, a doctor in the jungles of Borneo, and he is, it's in a, a hospital that's completely run down. He's trying to do his best for the for the village, but he's just running low on funds and he's just completely overworked. Q. Carl Wessinger, played by Jurgen Prochnov, who rocks up, saying that he is willing to give a massive cash injection and solve all of his problems if. Mark Dacascus takes him to a temple in which he found a beetle that he believes can be used to cure a disease. And Mark Dacascus obviously takes him there. I've never seen a man just completely turn on everyone around him and just completely bl- uh, double cross everyone as quickly as Jurgen Prochnov in this film. He turns up at his office, sweating for some reason, and just says, oh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a millionaire. I'll give you loads of cash. Just tell me you found this beetle. It cuts. It, even as it cuts to the temple where he's given them the beetle, he's pulling a gun out of his holster to shoot him in the chest. Um, and then he leaves Mark Dacascus for dead in this collapsing temple, takes this beetle, uh, which is very much Jurassic Parky, 
in taking up the um, taking up the sort of juice from it, the DNA, the DNA digs up an alien monster, which the locals call Balakai, and brings it back to life using his knowledge of this beetle. And then it cuts to two years later, where Jurgen Prochnov is in a contained. Stop me if this sounds familiar. A contained park uh, surrounded by an electric fence run mm-hmm. by an IT man in a Hawaiian shirt who is <laughs> who is uh, trying to sort of take all they can from this Balakai, this monster they've created, and basically turn it into a weapon to sell to the military, right? And then the electric fence fails, and they get attacked by the Balakai, this monster. Mark DeCast never heard of that before. Never it's heard of it. Probably original idea. Um, I spoke to Michael Crichton about it. Um, and, um, he, he's taking notes. <laughs> Mark Dukaskis in this film is—he's a beautiful man. He is a doctor, and yet he just goes on this Rambo-like mission to to take down um, take down Jurgen Prochnov. It's not a bad film in that it's not. It's filmed, I think it's filmed in the Philippines, in the jungle. So it's all done on location, and it's very pretty. Um, you know, and there's a, a lot of, there's some surprising deaths, and mm-hmm. everything is fine. The practical stuff is fine. The CG, all the CG in this film, is astonishing. Um, every time you see the monster. Uh, it's one of those films as well where they say, oh, yes, this indestructible monster. Imagine it, like, you know, on the on the fields in war, it'll them this indestructible monster people will pay billions for it and yet boom gets killed but a single shotgun blast or whatever towards the end is it invisible um it's such bad cg that when you see it it, it, it's like it's hands when it's sitting on a rock like clipping through the rock and it's just really spindly looks like a ps1 cutscene jumping around with like no weight to it at all and whilst at the start it started off and I thought, oh, this is a bit like it's a bit like Indiana Jones with this temple. And then when it got to Jurgen Prochnov, I thought, oh, this is a, a lot like Jurassic Park. The last twenty minutes are predator. <laughs> no you get you see through its heat vision, it's making the same sounds. There's even a bit where the da 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 kicks in almost just enough to get out the copyright and Mark Dukaskis strips down to his tidy whiteies and starts setting up traps around the jungle topless so what oh my god um that's, yeah, that's it's... like your ultimate dream is Mark Dukaskis doing predator this is perfect for you know <laughs> well i did like i was amused by it enough to see it through but it's just bizarre just that it's such the fact they have a mixture of like practical designs and CG, and the CG is just unforgivably bad. Um, but yeah, it is Mark Dukaskis with shoulder length hair, just just running around a jungle topless, which is absolutely fine. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's got that. I, I think of it as like you know Hercules' legendary journeys, that overly bright TV like vibe to it, and especially with um, the, the the special effects the use it's just like watching um what's her name in relic hunters what was that woman called tia career oh, you know yeah. like like a late 90s tv show yeah. but yeah it was it's ridiculous I'm, and everyone in this film is sweating sweating <laughs> um where can we see this dna it is on amazon prime <laughs> <laughs> of course it is um 
where does it where would you say it fits in the um oh, the tiers uh, hierarchy of, of Dukaskis films? Oh, Dukaskis films. It's nowhere near Drive or Crying Freeman. Um I would say it's a it's not it's it's slap bang in the middle of tier three because it's so average. And it's the kind of film you would watch with a hangover or if you're really ill. Because right. you could fall asleep, wake up, but not care if you've missed fifteen minutes. Still... You'd still be able to follow exactly what was going on because you've seen Jurassic Park before. <laughs> and and Predator. Right, okay. <laughs> um all right, finally, um we'll get to Alien Colon Covenant, which was made in twenty seventeen. And um it didn't do very well at the box office, unfortunately. It, uh, I wouldn't say it was a flop, but it certainly didn't do big numbers, and which is a pity because it, it's basically an improved version of Prometheus. Mm. It kind of hits some of the same beats, really, but it is a much, much better film. I remember watching it at the time and thinking it was a bit better, but now I think I watched it again and I, I watched it just as a cool horror movie, and I realized, yes, this is what Prometheus should have been in the first place. It's I think it's probably the, th- it's almost certainly the third best alien film after the first two. It can stand alongside them quite nicely. So in this one, this ship called the Covenant is uh, on its way to uh, a planet. It's got a load of like settlers, colonizers on board, um, and it's struck by an electromagnetic pulse, which takes it out of hypersleep. It kills a lot of the colonists, um, and this pulse they 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 pick up this signal from this planet. And they realise that this planet might actually be a better option than the one they're heading for to colonise. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Daniels, played by Catherine Waterston, um, is second in command uh, to Billy Crudup, the captain, obviously. And um, she says in classic Ripley style, don't land there. We don't know anything about it. It could be anything down there. But Billy Crudup is... It's, he's a really cool character actually because he's like this sort of he's thrust into the role of captain and he's really nervous and he's desperate for people to like him for the crew to like him so he is basically making a decision based on what will make him most popular which is let's land here let's just make a life for ourselves so anyway they land and they explore they're infected by a horrible virus and aliens are soon bursting out of them literally it's <laughs> disgusting like the first death scene where it just <laughs> literally before he even undoes his seatbelt right here we are <laughs> Boom! It's, quite, it's quite a funny scene where they land and it's all a bit grim i mean it's this big like lakes and like mountains and stuff but it's all really grim and foggy and like wet and and dark and billy crudup says to dan to daniels uh he goes oh it's not so bad down here i think we can settle here and she just looks at him like it's awful and we don't know what we're going to encounter so anyway they um so yes they are basically these creatures um burst out of several of the crew and they start attacking them they're rescued by none other than Michael Fassbender, David, from the previous movie. Um, Now, it turns out he has been holed up on this planet doing genetic experiments on the local population, which is now extinct. Um, But now these humans are landed. He has more test subjects for his experiments. Now, amongst the party that's landed on this uh, planet is Walter. He is the same model of android as David, um, except Walter is nice. And he confronts David and 
David's madness. And this is where you get the high minded stuff that you saw in Prometheus about um, kind of playing God and stuff like that. Right. Except this time it's well written. And it's the reason it works well here is because it's not just clunky exposition, but it's a tension between these two characters. These are two androids, both designed to serve uh, humanity, but they are coming at it from such different perspectives and it makes for a really interesting conflict. I really like the film because it goes back to goes back to what I was talking about with the original's core concept, where you take this classical genre setting and then you add the kind of production values and the elegance and the quality on top. So in this case, it's like a it's kind of a Frankenstein story or a Bride of Frankenstein story. Um, it even has like a kind of mad scientist in his castle kind of idea in the form of David. So that's cool. It's also genuinely scary and really menacing, which is something that Prometheus definitely was not. Um, and it has these really quite genuinely shocking, creepy moments. Like one, there's one moment where one of the droids is shut down in this kind of instant shutdown procedure. And it's really oddly like scary because his eyes instantly go white and he just he snaps into this kind of crouched like you know like a dead spider position he just instantly crouches in his dead spider position it's really weird it's just really cool ideas like that and it's astonishingly gory like real body horror stuff and Catherine waterston is brilliant in this uh in a way that numi rapace really wasn't brilliant in the previous film Catherine Watson's really good she starts the film with like a sudden bereavement and and it and what it does, it means that she carries this this kind of sadness around with her for the rest of the film. And she has this really, she has this very kind face, um, but she also conveys this really underlying, horrible underlying grief and this really good performance. Um, also, what makes it better than Prometheus is that the characters basically act like real people. Uh, like there are no nonsensical actions. There's believable panic uh and the film looks gorgeous too and most of it is quite dark but we can see what's happening unlike alien versus predator 2 <laughs> i'd say my only real complaint is the familiarity of it because actually it's pretty much a very similar plot to the original alien in the way that they're kind of snapped out of hypersleep uh you get the distress signal you get the reluctance to go down onto the planet and then, of course, it all kicks off. But and, and I think it's dragged down a little bit by Prometheus because it keeps having to refer back to the events of that film. I kind of wish they just rebooted. But hey, um, yeah, but it's elevated by really by the key performances. Fassbender is amazing in this because a lot of the time he's acting up against himself. And it's like in the social network where I didn't even realize that Army Hammer was not a twin <laughs> i and he was acting against himself it's much the same in this where if you didn't know that michael fassbender was not twins then you just think he is acting against a twin it's that well done so i really like covenant i'm gonna watch this tonight baby i'm gonna watch it with my eyes um, it's, so it it's so gross <laughs> i love it where is it? I have to watch this tonight. I just assume I'm it would not be sure. I've I've got the whole series on Blu-ray in a set, but I'm sure you can get it. You can rent it off Prime. 
Yeah, that's happening tonight, that is. That's got me really excited because I honestly, I, I, we've had many, many conversations over the years about how disappointed we were with Prometheus. I, did, I just assumed this would be, a, because it was a continuation, it, it was the same director, that it would just go down the same path. How was there such a gulf of quality between these two films? I'm really not sure. It's different writers, for a start. Um, oh, I, think... I can see now on Wikipedia this was written by Josh Whedon. Um, I think it was, it was John Logan who wrote it. And I, I, I know he's worked on a lot of Scorsese's recent films. So, you know, he's capable of putting a, he's clearly capable of putting a good script together. And like I said, it really, I think my problem with it when I first watched it was like, I was thinking, well, this is just a, a lot like Prometheus. It feels like a rerun and it feels slightly better, but still not quite there. But watching it again, I realized that if you just treat it, on its own terms, ignore that Prometheus existed because it doesn't really need to and just treat it as what it is, which is a, a quite a smart, disgusting body horror film, then it's really good. And it's got a really good cast. Like I said, like Crudup is there. Danny McBride is amongst them, not being just constantly joking all the time. He's quite good. But then I have a new, I have a new admiration for Danny McBride because of the Halloween reboot so hmm. i am gonna watch that tonight because yeah that just right. seems amazing um right then so it's uh, just before because we, we it's not often you do these series runs we did it with rocker where you said you could just watch one four and six six no yeah one four and <laughs> rocky balboa yeah. so what would you with this then if you were going to suggest the films in the alien series to watch would it be i'm guessing Alien, Aliens, Covenant. Yes. I don't think any of the rest of them are particularly worth watching. Like, you, could, Alien 3 is interesting but skippable. Alien Resurrection is awful. AVP, they're just different beasts. Like, if you had to watch one, maybe watch the first one, don't watch the second one. Forget Prometheus and just watch Covenant, yeah. Cool. So, what would you say is your film of the week, then? Well... Um, I think like Alien is the best of the bunch, but mm. everyone knows that Alien and Aliens are classics. So I'm going to go with Covenant just because it's the one that surprised me most, and I've had the biggest change of heart on. Okay. And and it would be a real pity if they couldn't build on that. I mean, if they're going to keep making these movies, if they couldn't build on on that, and you know, explore the creepy fastbender android character more because he's a genuinely malevolent evil bastard <laughs> um i it's a i'd say it would be a toss-up for me between arcade and dna no it would be between um the mask and pin uh, i did like pin but i'm tempted to say the mask because i think i felt like i rediscovered a bit of a, a, a yeah. lost classic and, uh, and and it's got the line in it, if you start dancing, I'll blow your brains out, which isn't said in enough films. So I don't think they say it in Alien Covenant, do they? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think it's mentioned there. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to go with The Mask, not the one with Eric Stoltz and Shear. Uh, okay. So that, that's it. Well, I've got, I've got like, a, I skipped one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine films. But we'll cover those <laughs> next time. Skipped nine. Yeah. Um, I've got, I've got an overflow list as well. 
Um, just we'll have to stop do this. watching films at some point just to, just to catch just, ourselves up. No, they just start reviewing episodes of Friends. Oh my god. Um, uh, yeah, so remember before we end the Ark and Star game, you've got to get from Thomas Jane oh, yeah. to Jeffrey Combs in as few moves as possible. And that's open to the listeners. Email us at themenwhotalk at outlook.com. What is your favorite Friends episode, just out of interest? Favorite episode? I don't care. I don't care, but I'm going to favorite episode. <laughs> Come on, we've all got one. We've all got our top ten. Um, let me just think. Let me just shuffle through a few in my mind. It's got to be one where Chandler is wearing weirdly baggy clothes, surely. Yeah, it's got to be one where in one scene Chandler is wearing a really tight blue fitted tailored suit, and then in the next scene it cuts to him and he is being winched out of a king size bed through a hole that's had to be knocked through the wall. <laughs> oh, classic. What, the... I, I will say the bit where he, the one episode, whatever it is, where um, Chandler says something like, Oh, thank God for a second there. I thought you'd all spent years thinking I was secretly gay in a really sarcastic rebuttal to something. I, I can't remember. <sighs> Back when Chandler was, was funny. What is your favourite friend? Nothing, though. Nothing in Matthew Perry's career has ever topped the scene in The Whole Nine Yards where mm-hmm. he realises who Bruce Willis is as Jimmy the Tulip and then says, I'm just going to shoot off if that's okay. And like really quietly walks out of a sliding door and waves. And then when Bruce Willis walks over to the window, he is pegging it across his gardener's house. And his head is like juddering. He's running so hard. And his tie is flapping. That's the best scene in that film. What's your um, favourite Friends episode then? I would say it, it's actually in the final season, which is weirdly one of the Like Friends went horribly downhill from about season five. and But in the final season, it just suddenly became really funny again. And there's... It is when David Schwimmer, Ross, he is, he's really struggling with the fact that um, Joey and Rachel are together, or an item. He invites them around to dinner and like makes fetus and he gets battered and he's really nervous. And it's so funny just watch because they, they're obviously like really awkward and just like watching him just get progressively more and more battered. And it's just like his his impression of someone who's like drunk and nervous is perfect. And it's pretty much takes up the whole episode. It's so funny. You've got to watch it. That's oh, my favorite have, episode. You're going to have to watch the Paul Bearer now. If you want to see some more David Schwimmer at his peak. I think David Schwimmer is a genuinely brilliant comic actor. Yeah. He, 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 everything I've seen him in, obviously fine in friends, everything I've seen him in outside of friends, he's always just been like really valid in. He just seems like a really nice man as well. So good. Yes. Anyway, right. Enough, enough <laughs> mid nineties comedy. <laughs> Let's okay. get to a real bread and butter. Okay then. I shall, bid you, <laughs> I shall bid you adieu and speak to you soon. Like Farewell. Farewell. Love you.